Let's start by reading our text this morning. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is our introduction to John, a kind of John the Baptist. And that's going to be a little confusing today because we're reading the Gospel of John the Apostle and talking about John the Baptist. Interestingly, John the Apostle never names himself in this book. He never mentions his own name. He refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved. And really, in saying that this is the Gospel of John, we're relying completely on external sources. So we're looking at the early church fathers referring to it as John's gospel rather than a book like Galatians where it starts out by Paul saying exactly who's writing. So we're taking this from the outside looking in. John kind of minimizes his role in the story. Yet he mentions this other John, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, and just real briefly gives us an introduction to who he is. It's going to expand on that, not next week, but the following week when we're back in John, we'll be looking more fully at the actual ministry of John the Baptist. But here, in these three verses, it introduces John as a witness. He is a witness to the word sent from God. That word witness is one that I think we're all pretty familiar with. When it talks about John being a witness, we would not be wrong to have our minds go to a courtroom. In a courtroom, you have witnesses. Their responsibility is to present the truth, to present it accurately, to present it faithfully, so that all those who are in the courtroom, particularly the jury, knows exactly what happened. Not sure how many of you followed the trial of Larry Nassar in Michigan. He was the doctor for the U.S. Women's Olympic Gymnastics team. And he is now facing hundreds of years of prison time for abusing over and over and over through the years these young ladies who had come to him for treatment. Last week was his sentencing hearing. And a young lady by the name of Rachel Den Holland gave the final victim impact statement. Rachel's an interesting person. I actually met one of her friends last weekend just by coincidence. She was a gymnast. She was treated by this man 15 years ago and came forward. And she's the one who spearheaded this whole thing. She went to the Indianapolis newspaper. She gave them facts, details, research, and that launched this investigation. And then something like 150 other people came forward after that happened. Well, Rachel's husband is actually a PhD student at Southern Baptist Seminary down in Louisville, Kentucky, a good conservative seminary, one that if I were wanting to go to a PhD, it would be at the very top of my list. And she gave the final victim impact statement. Let me just say, it's not salacious at all. If you want a good use of 10 minutes, look that up on the internet. It's one of the most powerful statements of forgiveness but also justice and the gospel that I've ever heard. And all these victims would line up before the accused, and they'd say, after he was even pronounced guilty, in the interest of sentencing, would explain the impact that he had on them. And as she closed, she did such an exceptional job of talking about forgiveness, yet talking about justice, saying, the only reason I can forgive you is because I understand what justice is. 
I would commend it to you to listen to it. It was very encouraging. But in a courtroom, what you have is you have these series of witnesses who are going to give testimony. What was the impact of what this person did? What did they do? What are the details? There's different types of witnesses. Of course, there's the eyewitnesses who saw that, the victim witnesses who experienced whatever happened. There are some witnesses who are expert witnesses. And so when those witnesses come in, you're kind of evaluating them. And that's exactly what the jury has to do. The jury has to watch and has to decide who's telling the truth. And the lawyer's job is to make sure that the story comes out completely. Well, what makes a good witness? What makes a good, strong case? I'd say if there's a lot of witnesses, that strengthens the case. This situation, there are 150. That was a very strong case to be made when all those witnesses came forward. A diverse group of witnesses. Maybe some who were personally affected, some who saw it, maybe some expert witnesses. A good court case is going to have a diverse group of witnesses, not just a few people who are all very similar. You wouldn't think it's a strong court case if one family, everyone was giving the same testimony and a bunch of other people disagreed with that testimony. You want to see diversity. You want to see expertise. The World Cup is this summer. No one here should care about it because America is terrible at soccer. We're not in it this year. But I always love watching the World Cup. And almost every time there's a controversial call, a controversial foul is called or not called, you always hear Americans saying, even the British guy who is doing the commentary said the ref got it wrong. Because the British guy must know more about soccer than the American guy. So they appeal to that British expertise. A good witness has some expertise. So if someone were on trial and there were ballistic information in debate, what happened to the bullets, you'd want to bring in a guy who knows about guns, who knows about firearms, who knows what effect different firearms have on the bullets. You bring in expert witnesses. Well, the Gospel of John is going to bring in a wide variety of consistent and diverse witnesses to the identity of Jesus. And this is all in service of that final idea we're working toward from chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. These were written that you might believe and that believing that you would have life in his name. We're working towards that goal throughout this whole book. And that term witness, you're going to see it pop up over and over and over and over in the Gospel of John. As many witnesses that are all making this case. Jesus is the Son of God, and in him you can have life if you believe. Some different witnesses that John uses. The first witness is the one we've looked at here already, just in brief. John the Baptist is bearing witness about Jesus. He comes before him. Most of the other witnesses are after or at the same time as Jesus. John the Baptist comes before, and he says, Someone is coming. Someone is coming after me. Listen to him. He's preparing the way. He's making straight the way so that the Son of God can come in and people will be receptive. So John the Baptist is the first witness. We also see Jesus bearing witness, particularly of men. John 2.25, Jesus is dealing with some of the Pharisees, dealing with what's going on inside them. And it says, And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, so this is a contrast here. It's the same term, but it's being used a little bit differently. Jesus doesn't need anyone to be a witness about what's going on in a man's heart, because Jesus already knows. Jesus doesn't need a witness, yet we do. We need someone to give testimony to who Jesus is. 
Jesus in John 3, talking to Nicodemus, says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So Jesus, talking to John the Baptist, is saying, I'm bearing witness to the Father. He's telling truth. John the Baptist needs to believe the witness of Jesus about Jesus. We'll unpack that a little bit more as we work our way through. The Samaritan woman bears witness to Jesus. John 4, 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Same Greek word, testimony, witness, because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So we have a Samaritan woman. You have John the Baptist. You have Jesus bearing witness himself. You have a Samaritan woman bearing witness. Jesus also bears witness of the Father, John 5, 36 through 38. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I said that wrong. Jesus' works bear witness about Jesus and bear witness about the Father. John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus again bears witness about himself or his works again about himself. Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name witness about me. So the works that are recorded in John's gospel are going to bear witness of who Jesus is. Then it changes up a little bit in John chapter 12. The crowd is going to bear witness about Lazarus' resurrection. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So we're getting the same idea. The crowd saw dead Lazarus, then the crowd saw alive Lazarus. They're telling people about it. Something happened, and they're sharing the news of what happened. The crowd bears witness about Lazarus. The Spirit bears witness about Jesus, John 15, 27. You will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Actually, I've got the wrong verse in there. It's in that same ballpark where he says the Spirit will bear witness of him. That verse, though, talks about the disciples who will one day bear witness about Jesus. And that's what the book of John is. It is John, the disciple, bearing witness about Jesus. Jesus bears witness about truth, John 18, 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And John bears witness about what he had seen again in the gospel. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. That's John referring to the writing in his gospel. So all throughout the Gospel of John, those are just some high points. There's other times where it's mentioned. All throughout the Gospel, this idea of a witness or a testimony is going to pop up again and again and again. It might be one of those things that as we work our way through the book, it would be helpful for you to just have your radar going and you're going to see witness, 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 and maybe give it an underline or a highlight in your Bible to help pick out that theme because it's a huge theme. It's exactly what John is trying to do. John is saying, here is an event that happened. Jesus came into the world. Jesus performed miracles. Jesus taught. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come after him. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, let's do something with that. But this gospel serves as a witness furthering that central point. And so here in verses 6 through 8 of 
John chapter 1, we have John the Baptist taking his role as witness. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The three characteristics of John that we see in this. First of all, John the Baptist was a man. In the coming weeks, we will talk about the humanity of Jesus. That's certainly a big part of John's gospel as well. But in this first section, the emphasis is not on Jesus' humanity yet. The emphasis in this first section is on Jesus' deity. Jesus is God. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word created. All of that is focusing our attention on Jesus as God. That's certainly not to take away from the fact that Jesus is a man, but here that's our emphasis. And so we have this interesting contrast where you have the Word in the first five verses, and then we get to verse 6, and it says, There was a man. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Undoubtedly, John the Baptist is an extraordinary man. If John the Baptist wasn't so closely associated with Jesus, I'd imagine he'd be a character like Isaiah in the Old Testament or Elijah, one of those guys that you just kind of know about as a big character. Now, in the New Testament, he gets a few mentions here. He's a major player in the Jesus story, but he doesn't dominate it because he's so close to the one who is greater than him. Yet, he was a significant man. Jesus spoke highly of him. He had great influence. Anytime you're bad enough to get personally executed by the king, you're an influential guy. And that's where John ends up being at the end of his life. So, John's significant, but he is a man. He is a man, though, who was sent from God. So the second characteristic of John the Baptist is he was sent from God. He was commissioned by God. He is first and foremost a servant of God. If you look through John's ministry, he is absolutely consistent in the fact that he is constantly saying, stop looking at me, look at the Lamb of God. Stop looking at me, look at Jesus. Don't look at me. I'm just a witness. I'm just one giving testimony. I'm just the advance team preparing the way. It's almost like when a president comes to a new place. A president flies into a new city. Before he ever comes, a month before he comes, there's going to be secret service agents preparing the way. There's going to be police officers when he lands waiting with the streets shut down so that he can drive through. Because the focus is not on Joe Smith, the Secret Service agent, the focus is on the president. And that Secret Service agent has a task to prepare the way for the president. In the same way, John has a task to prepare the way for the president. Imagine if one of the president's Secret Service agents were to get up in the middle of a speech and start talking when the president's supposed to be giving the speech. Imagine how long he would be a Secret Service agent. Not very The second that guy makes himself the star of the show, he's not doing his job. John is like that secret service agent. He's preparing the way. He's making way for Jesus. He's turning everyone's focus onto the one who comes after him. And that's why in John chapter 3, in referring to himself, John simply says, he must increase, I must decrease. He's preparing the way. He's turning our attention to the Son of God. His actions do not serve his own interest. The third characteristic of John is that he was a witness. 
He gives testimony that demands a verdict. He bears witness to the light. He bears witness for the purpose of generating belief. Look in verse number seven. He came as a witness to, so we've got a purpose statement, to, pardon me, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that, so we've got a purpose statement on a purpose statement. He's coming to do something for a reason. The reason he's bearing witness to the light is so that all could believe through him, so that all might believe through him. So John's task is decreasing himself, increasing Christ for the purpose of other people, seeing who Jesus is and responding in faith to him so they can have life. He is constantly pointing attention away from himself. At the end of this chapter, verse number 29, this account is recorded. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. All right, so there's a strong statement of Jesus' deity that's kind of confusing, right? He came after me, but he was before me. That whole conflict in time, we're talking about a timeless one. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about God. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. So he's recording the baptism of Jesus. That account's not included in the gospel of John, but John talking about it is included in the gospel of John. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Chapter 3 is a similar account. Chapter 3, verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So again and again throughout the life of John the Baptist is this recurring theme. It's about Jesus. It is not about me. Now imagine John. I mean, he's an influential guy. Everybody knows about John the Baptist. He's a little bit crazy. Everybody knows him. Herod knows him. Herod's wife knows him. Okay, Everybody knows this guy. He's super popular. And if there's one thing that super popular people hate doing, it's becoming less popular. But that's exactly what John the Baptist wants to do. He's influential. He's having a following. When Jesus and he interact about his disciples, he's pointing them towards Jesus. 
He's pointing them away from himself because he recognizes his role in God's economy, his role in the way God is working in the life of Christ is simply to lift Jesus up, exalt him, help him, pick him up, help other people see him, be a witness. John the Baptist was selfless. He was a witness. He was focused on something outside of himself. So, what does the account of John the Baptist mean to us today? What difference does it make in our lives? It's not the easiest text to apply, right? It does not mean we should go out and eat locusts and honey while wearing camel skin in the wilderness. That's not our application, but how do we apply this text? Well, first of all, and most significantly, let's think on the purpose of the Gospel of John. Because that's why it was written. The purpose of including the story of John the Baptist is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing we might have life in his name. That's the point of this account. That's the point of every account in the Gospel of John. They're serving this singular purpose of revealing Jesus to us. And so when we hear the account of John the Baptist, and as we develop it more throughout time, as we get to the places where John the Baptist speaks more than in this section, we respond simply by doing the very thing the Gospel of John calls us to do. Believe in the Son and have life in his name through that belief. As we study John the Apostle's writing, his intent is no different from John the Baptist in his preaching. John the Apostle's trying to accomplish the same thing. John the Baptist comes before and points to Jesus. John the Apostle writes after and points back to Jesus. This whole book is exalting Jesus, who is the Word of God, who takes on flesh, who dwells among us, who lives a perfect life, who performs miracles so that they would be a witness to his nature as the Son of God who continues to live that life, who is crucified, who dies, who is buried, who rises again in triumph over death, bringing light and life to all who believe. And so John, the evangelist, John, the one who writes the gospel, John the Baptist, John the forerunner, both of these guys are kind of giving us a big bear hug of look at Jesus. Before Jesus, look at Jesus. After Jesus, look at Jesus. While Jesus is alive, look at Jesus. It's turning our focus to the Son of God. The Son of God who gives us light when life seems dark. The Son of God who gives us life when we are dead in our sins. And so we must look to Jesus when we read about John. God does not ask for our blind faith. God doesn't just tell us to randomly believe whatever we're told. The Gospel of John gives evidence. It gives testimony. It gives a witness to who Jesus is. Faith isn't believing something for no reason. I think most people in the world think faith is just believing something that doesn't make any sense. No, faith is the response of being given truth and accepting it. So we act in faith when we look at John's gospel. We say this is talking about Jesus, the son of God, Jesus, who is the only source of light and life. So I am going to turn from seeking light and life in other places. And I'm going to turn to Jesus. I'm going to look to Jesus for my hope in this life and in the next. So all of us, as we read 
the Gospel of John, as we look at the life of John the Baptist, we turn to the testimony that has been given to us about Jesus. That is the primary application we should take, looking to Jesus in faith. But I also think we would be wise to take some secondary application here as well. Some secondary application would include the idea that we also ought to be witnesses. Just as John was able to say, look at Jesus, don't look at me, we ought also be able to do the same thing. We're not called to the exact same ministry as John, but when Jesus leaves us, the last words he says is, go make disciples. Exactly what John the Baptist was doing. He says, go make disciples. And so we, as we respond to that, we also are making disciples. But how do we make disciples? Well, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We're teaching them, we're pointing them towards Jesus. We have the same responsibility as John the Baptist. So in your life, are you living like a John the Baptist with your focus entirely on exalting the name of Christ? Or are you living independently and for yourself? It's a question we ought always be asking ourselves. Could it be said that my life's motto is he must increase and I must decrease? I know there are certainly many times when I could not accurately say that. Are you willing to take risks for the sake of increasing Jesus' name? Are you willing to take risks in order to help other people to see Jesus? Are you willing to take risks in order to see your family know Jesus better? Are you willing to make sacrifices for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think many of us have had our definition of sacrifice so skewed by the culture of entitlement that we live in that we think we're sacrificing when we wake up and go to church on Sunday morning. Got John, who goes out into the wilderness, gives up everything, gets a great following, and then abandons that following, pushes them away from him so that he can exalt Jesus, and we congratulate ourselves because we go to church on Sunday morning and then don't think about the gospel, don't think about Christ for the rest of the week. We have such a skewed, messed up definition of sacrifice because we are so, so incredibly comfortable. Yet, John says, I need to decrease he needs to increase. And I can't really think of many times when I've thought about myself, I need to decrease. We think about increasing. I want to grow. I want to get healthier. I want to have an increasing income. I want to have more savings. I want to have a more stable life. John says, I need to decrease. Let me pass away. Let me pass out of the scene and allow Christ to take preeminence. We need to live with a lot more John in us where we can look at our life and honestly say, everything I have, all of the comfort that I have, all of the peace that I have, even the relationships that I have, everything that I have is Christ. Everything that I have will be utilized for the service of my Savior. He must increase, I must decrease. Yet, that's so unnatural. It just feels wrong. Yet, that is what John does. And I think we are safe in a secondary application saying, I think that would be a good thing for us to do as well. Not in the exact same way, not living in the wilderness, 
not necessarily all the crazy stuff John did, although maybe we should be less afraid of crazy stuff than we are. We ought to be willing to decrease for the sake of increasing the glory of our Savior. So John the Baptist and us believe his witness. He told us about Christ. So as you read this book, listen to what John the Baptist says about Christ and respond to that testimony in faith. And if you respond in faith, you also will be a witness. I think it's interesting when I, when I think through kind of the path the Bible follows from the point of Jesus' death. Everything after Jesus dies and ascends into heaven is people bearing witness about Jesus. It's Paul looking back and talking about Jesus. It's Paul looking back, talking about what Jesus has accomplished. It's Peter looking back. It's John looking back, writing the Gospels. Even when Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the resurrected Christ. He says, there's hundreds of other people who also saw him. Ask them about it. They all turn into these witnesses for Christ. Well, a witness for Christ is always going to be someone who is making themselves look smaller than Jesus. I urge us all to think carefully in our life, where are the places where I am bigger than Christ? Where are the places where I have increased and he has decreased? Then repent and exalt Christ, even at great personal cost.